Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by rhinologist and skull base surgeon Dr. Garrett Choby, and we'll be discussing benign sinonasal lesions. Dr. Choby, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'll say that today we're going to branch off a little bit from our normal structure. Today's going to be a little bit of a grab bag where we talk about several different pathologies in the sinonasal cavity, and we'll kind of walk through them stepwise. Uh, so, Dr. Choby, before we get started, uh, why consider uh, sinonasal lesions uh, that are benign in nature? What, uh, what tips do you have for us to start? The first thing that I'll mention is that these are relatively common lesions that we will all come across in our clinical practice. They come from uh, a number of different areas because there are so many different types of tissue that arise in the sinonasal cavity. Things from squamous epithelium to respiratory epithelium to neural structures and then also things like cartilage and bone. So this really causes a, a wide divergence in tumors you can see in the nasal cavity. Now, we've done specific episodes in the past on some of these, uh, including an inverting papilloma episode, as well as a uh, JNA or uh, juvenile angiofibroma episode, which are really important ones to think about. But there are a number of other ones that do occur, and we should all be quite familiar with, although they may not warrant their own specific podcast dedicated to them. So that's why we thought it'd be important to sort of cover all these today. So when you first evaluate someone uh, who has a benign sinonasal tumor, what are some of the symptoms they present with? So the most common symptom by far is unilateral nasal area obstruction. And this occurs in about three quarters of these patients and is the most common reason why they would probably come in to see you. Although most of these lesions have been slow growing tumors over a long period of time, patients may have sort of gotten used to them over time and may not actually notice it until they develop something like a cold or an upper respiratory infection. So in that sense, they could present with a shorter history, even though the tumor has been growing for a longer period of time. Some other patients also present with epistaxis, although that's more commonly associated with malignancy than benign lesions. But about 20% of patients or so will have some sort of bleeding from the area. Pain is not particularly common, although some pa patients will have things like uh, some facial pressure or those kind of symptoms. And then some folks actually present with acute or chronic sinusitis secondary to obstruction from the lesion. And when you are first evaluating these patients, what are some of the questions that you might ask them to tease out their symptoms and how this came to be? I think it's always important to ask patients how long their symptoms have been present for. So again, th these most commonly are slow-growing tumors, and patients many times have symptoms for a long period of time. But there can be situations where sort of a viral trigger occurs with either a, you know, a URI or a cold, where then it sort of illuminates this change in their nasal anatomy and they begin to feel it which is a shorter time course than you may expect, but that does happen from time to time. When these get quite large, uh, they can push on the eye and cause things like diplopia or limitations in extraocular movements. I also ask about any history of epistaxis or bleeding history, as we mentioned earlier. And then uh, lastly, I also ask them about any symptoms of facial numbness or other neurologic-related symptoms, as that may insinuate a more aggressive lesion, such as a malignancy. And when you perform physical exam, can you run us through briefly uh, what your physical exam looks like and what you're looking for in these situations? So as with all patients, uh, I think they deserve a full head and neck exam, including a cranial nerve examination. But in the, in the setting of a benign uh, nasal lesion, that commonly is, is pretty unrevealing. Again, pay special attention to cranial nerve function and eye function just to make sure those things are normal in these patients. But really, the key to your exam is nasal endoscopy. And this is really important in these patients. Now, there are some lesions that occur primarily in the sinuses and do not extend into the nasal cavity, and these aren't readily visible on nasal endoscopy, especially things like osteomas. 
But other ones that are epithelial in nature or vascular in nature may be readily visible on endoscopy, and you can take note of the attachment site, where they originate from, and what the vascular characteristics are. I think that's a good brief summary of kind of how we evaluate these patients. And just as a reminder, you and I also did an episode on nasal obstruction, which a little bit more comprehensively talks about how to work patients up who present with something like unilateral nasal obstruction. I next wanted to move on to the differential diagnosis. The differential here is long, and I was hoping we could just go through a comprehensive differential to start, and then we'll break it down uh, from there. Yeah, this is, this is important because, again, this is, this is kind of a grab bag of a number of different lesions. It's always helpful to organize your thoughts in a specific manner. I think for the nasal cavity, probably the easiest way to do so is to think of the tissue site of origin and then go from there with your differential. So as you mentioned, this is a pretty exhaustive list, but I'll go through it just for, for completeness sake and for everyone's benefit as they think about these lesions. The first tissue of origin I think about is the, is the epithelial tissue. And most commonly, this would be an inverting papilloma, although other things can occur in this, in this tissue as well, such as dermoids or adenomas. We also think about neural tissue in this area, uh, things like a meningioma that can extend from the intracranial space into the nose, uh, neurofibromas. There can be ectopic pituitary tissue, uh, schwannomas can occur in, uh, from any nerve in the nasal cavity. And then lastly, an important one is also an encephalocele, which uh, also has to be on the differential. We think about odontogenic sources, things like amelioblastoma or an odontogenic keratocyst, which can arise from the dentition and extend in the maxillary sinus and sometimes the whole way into the nasal cavity. Vascular origin is also very important. Things like hemangiomas or angiofibromas or the more famous juvenile nasal angiofibroma and paragangliomas as well. There can be sources of muscular uh, lesions such as leomyoma or rhabdomyoma. Cartilaginous lesions can occur either from the septum or from the petrochival junction where those bones come together. And those are things like chondroma or chondroblastoma. Bony lesions can occur, uh, most commonly is the osteoma, but also the osteoblastoma. Soft tissue lesions can occur as well, things like fibroma, uh, lipoma, or myxoma. And then finally, there's other random things like plasmacytoma or a chordoma, which might be able to fit onto the neural structures as well. So thanks for, that's a good exhaustive list. Uh, and then when you see these patients and maybe you see a lesion on nasal endoscopy, do you have a shorter list that you kind of mentally consider that might be more realistic in these scenarios? Absolutely. And this is probably, you know, even more salient for, for, for clinical practice reasons. But I tend to think of these uh, more commonly as either a fibrosseous lesion, uh, as a vascular lesion, or an inverting papilloma. That's probably the three most common ones I think about. I always entertain the idea of a fungal ball as well, because that can mimic this on some imaging studies, and some of the symptoms can also mimic it, even though it's not uh, typically you know, a, a lesion or a, uh, a tumor, if you will, but it's something that can occur relatively commonly and can mimic it as well. So now that we've covered the differential diagnosis, I was hoping we could march through separate pathologies and just give the brass tacks or the quick summary important information that we need to know regarding these individual pathologies. So would you mind telling us first about osteomas? Absolutely. And, and this, of course, fits under that um, sort of fibrosseous lesion category. And an osteoma is classically considered the most common benign uh, lesion of the, no of the nasal cavity. If you look at patient CT scans, it actually happens more commonly than you think. In some studies, actually, 1% to 3% of patients will have these if you look very closely at their CT scans. But the vast majority are asymptomatic. So even though they may be the most commonly occurring lesion, they may not be the most commonly occurring lesion that presents to you uh, for evaluation. They typically present in sort of middle age and tend to be 
uh, more common in men than women. In the sinuses, they occur most commonly in the ethmoid and frontal sinuses, and especially at that sort of frontal outflow tract, frontal ethmoidal region where they can cause uh, some issues. Typically, you can't see them endoscopically because they're within the sinus and not in the nasal cavity yet, unless they become uh, very large. There are two classically described subtypes. Uh, the first one is ivory, and the second one is mature. In ivory are extremely dense bone. When you um, operate on these ones, they require a lot of uh, very time-consuming, extensive drilling. And mature variants have more sort of cancellous bone and some interosseous spaces and are, are less uh, firm, if you will. These tend to grow very slowly, and as I mentioned earlier, most are asymptomatic, so many of them do not require treatment. Could you next tell us about fibrous dysplasia? Absolutely. And this is another lesion that falls under that fibro-osseous category. This is a, a bony lesion that has a very classic radiographic appearance of a sort of a ground glass appearance. In the vast majority of these cases, it can be highly predicted on radiographic imaging and therefore does not require a specific biopsy or surgery to correct it. When you look inside of the microscope, uh, there's some degree of normal bone then interspersed with this fibrous and connective tissue that forms a very irregular shaped trabecula uh, amongst the bone. The vast majority of the time, this is uh, managed with simple observation, and surgery is not required unless it's causing some specific cosmetic deformity or on occasion from uh, neural compression cause pain. Uh, but it is uh, classically very challenging to treat surgically and tends to sort of fill back in with bone. And is there a hormonal component to fibrous dysplasia? There is thought to be a hormonal component, and most of these can experience some growth during puberty, but typically after puberty, growth rates simply slow down or often even can regress after puberty. The next uh, pathology that I want to talk about was hemangioma, and that's more of a broad term that can include several different types of lesions, but could you tell us about these vascular lesions that we might come across? Yes, and this is commonly considered the second most common uh, benign lesion of the nasal cavity. And these can be a couple different variants, uh, most commonly the capillary hemangioma or the pyogenic granuloma. There's also other types, including the cavernous hemangioma, that is, but those are somewhat more rare. The pyogenic granuloma is interesting because it, it can have an estrogen component to it, and it classically is associated with growth during pregnancy, but can oftentimes involute and go away uh, after pregnancy is completed. It typically presents as a red or purple smooth mass and most commonly arises on the nasal septum, but can also arise from the inferior turbinate. Under the microscope, this appears like lobules of uh, capillaries in a submucosal space. And there's oftentimes some, some surrounding feeding vessels uh, in these areas. Um, now, the cavernous hemangioma does come from some larger blood vessels and more commonly arises in the middle turbinate than the septum or the inferior turbinate, as opposed to the pyogenic granuloma. Uh, next I, that I have on my list is the papilloma. Uh, could you briefly tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so papillomas can, can occur in a couple different varieties. The most common one we talk about and see is the inverting papilloma. And again, that's a tumor of epithelial origin. There is a, a separate uh, episode dedicated to this, so I won't go into too much detail with it because that episode covers it in great detail. But uh, these tumors do have a history of having very local aggressive nature. In a, in, a, in a small percentage, about 10% or so, can have some malignant change within it, most commonly into squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, it's thought to be the third most common one behind the osteoma and the hemangioma, but of those that present to us in clinical practice, it perhaps maybe is the most common one that we tend to see. And again, there's a full dedic uh, episode dedicated to this, which uh, you can refer to for all the, uh, all the great details. Can we next talk about some odontogenic masses that we might see in our practice in the sinonasal cavity? 
Yeah, and, and these these are interesting because they probably in general more commonly present to an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, but there are situations where they primarily involve a sinus or extension into the nasal cavity. Uh, they may present to us at, at, for evaluation. These are, are typically developmental situations uh, dominated by dentigerous cysts and also odontogenic keratocysts. cysts. Um, this, these are benign but can be very locally aggressive tumors um, and are thought to arise from the dental uh, lamina. And this is sort of a portion of the epithelial tissue which is seen in the developing tooth. These are interesting, much more common in men than women uh, by about a five to one margin. And we should keep in mind that the more common site of these odontogenic tumors is actually the mandible, but we would tend to see them when they occur in, uh, in the maxilla. They are typically removed via curatage or, or general removal, but they do have high rates of recurrence with these techniques. We briefly talked about JNA, and we do have a separate episode on that, but could you touch on that just briefly? Yeah, this is a, a vascular lesion uh, typically arising in adolescent males, and there is, again, a hormonal component to it. There's at least thought to be a hormonal component to it. So anyone that's an adolescent male that presents with a nosebleed should always have a scope done to rule this out. And this is one that you should definitely avoid biopsying the clinic or else you're going to cause a, uh, a major issue and your clinic staff will not like you very much. But again, uh, Dr. Rowan has a great episode on JNAs and, uh, and you can certainly refer there for, for the remainder of things. And then the last group that I wanted to talk about in terms of pathologies that we'll be discussing is uh, what we're going to call masses of the sphenoid sinus. Could you tell us what you're considering in these situations? Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to bring this area up in particular because the sphenoid has so many other important surrounding structures around it that can arise uh, with tumors that can then extend into the sphenoid sinus. So all of the above tumors can potentially occur in the sphenoid sinus, but things like the pituitary gland above uh, can have adenomas that extend into the sphenoid sinus. Things from the clivus like chordomas or chondrosarcomas can also extend there. And other things that can occasionally arise there like a dehiscent internal carotid artery aneurysm that could uh, present in the sphenoid. And I bring this up because it, it's probably a good idea in the majority of these cases to also obtain an MRI with contrast to make sure you're not dealing with an intracranial lesion that's extended into the sphenoid and not simply a primary sphenoid lesion. And next, I wanted to, to talk about some syndromes that we should consider when we see these benign masses. I know in clinic, there are a few times I've seen patients and haven't considered uh, the more global picture. So could you walk us through some of these syndromes that might be associated with some of the benign sinonasal lesions that we might come across? Yeah, and that, that's, that's a great point, Jason. There are, we sort of get pigeonholed into our own line of thinking and don't always think about you know, things, things from medical school or step one, you know? Uh, the first one is, is with osteomas, there is an association with something called Gardner's syndrome. And that classically has, has a triad of things, and that's colorectal polyps, which is more commonly their initial sort of presenting thing that they'll deal with, as well as skeletal abnormalities, including osteomas, and then also supernumerary teeth. And this is an autosomal dominant uh, constellation. So many of these patients may have known they may have it from you know, family members or those kind of things. But uh, they have a, a high chance of having uh, degeneration, uh, malignancy in their uh, colon polyps. And then again, the, the thing we're dealing with is the osteoma, which can occur in regards to this. And then for OKC, the odontogenic keratocyst, is there something we should think about for that? So classically, these can be associated with Gorlin syndrome. And this is also a, another autosomal dominant condition. And these patients typically have multiple basal cell carcinomas, as well as skeletal abnormalities, uh, cranial calcifications, and then OKCs as well. So something that you may want to entertain if they have some of these things going on. 
And then the last one is uh, the syndrome associated with fibrous dysplasia. This is a McCune-Albright syndrome. Uh, this is typically where they have multiple areas of fibrous dysplasia, so sort of that classic polyostatic as opposed to a single area. They also have cafe au lait spots and can have some endocrine abnormalities, including precocious puberty and thyroid disease. So something they would have many other things going on in addition to fibrous dysplasia. But when there's multifocal fibrous dysplasia, it's something to think about. So now that we've talked about a lot of the different pathologies that we can experience uh, in the sinonasal uh, benign tumors, can you tell us briefly what your workup is going to be for these patients? So besides the uh, physical exam, which we already had discussed, uh, a CT scan is where we start with the majority of these lesions. Um, th the challenge on a CT scan is to differentiate things like malignancies from uh, benign lesions. With these benign lesions, typically they'll cause you know, some bony erosion changes or even some sort of deformity around them, but don't have the classic aggressive appearance of infiltrating soft tissue and eating through bone like, like, like a malignancy would. More commonly, things like expansion or pressure-induced remodeling of bone as opposed to uh, that aggressive bony destruction. The one thing I will mention in particular is with inverting papillomas, it's really good to look for an area of hyperostatic bone, which is classically where the attachment of that tumor is, and that really needs to be addressed surgically when you, when you do a, a removal of inverting papillomas. And what's the role for MRI, or what do you need to see in order to trigger the order of an MRI? So as with most lesions, an MRI is very valuable to evaluate things like skull base uh, erosion or entrance into the intracranial space or things like entrance into the orbit, really help to differentiate those soft tissues of the lesion from the surrounding structures. When I think about surgically addressing a lesion, if I cannot tell on CT scan whether something like a frontal sinus is secondarily opacified from blockage versus tumor extension, I may get an MRI scan to help to, del to delineate that. It's important because you may counsel the patient they need something like a trephination or an open approach if there's a lot of tumor in the frontal sinus as opposed to secondary obstruction from a, a tumor below uh, causing just some mucosal uh, backup behind it. And what's the role of laboratory studies in this setting? So for most of these lesions, th there's not a large role for a laboratory workup. Perhaps we think about one of those syndromes, as we mentioned above, there could be a, a role for some of the laboratory studies. But for most lesions, there, there's not a strong role for, for laboratory workup. I next want to talk about treatment options. Uh, we'll mainly be talking about surgical excision. And since we're discussing lots of pathologies, which can occur in lots of different areas within the sinonasal cavity, I wanted to more pick your brain about how you think about moving forward with treatment options. What are the things you're considering when you're talking to a patient about possible surgical excision of this benign tumor? So the first thing that I'll, that I'll mention is that there is definitely a different approach to these benign lesions as compared to sinusal malignancies, which we have uh, covered in some other episodes. The first thing I'll mention is when I see them in clinic and have evaluated their imaging studies, if there's any suspicion this may represent a malignancy, I think it's very important to obtain tissue to rule that out. So when you see something looks like an inverting papilloma, besides just thinking it's inverting papilloma, it's probably worthwhile to make sure you get a biopsy to confirm that. Now, other things may be more suggestive on radiographic studies, like an osteoma, where you know, a biopsy is not necessary for those cases. But certainly, if you're worried about malignancy, getting a biopsy is, is, is very, very important. And again, because inverting papilloma and JNA are covered in other episodes, we won't go into a lot of the in-depth surgical you know, treatment of those conditions. But when thinking about things like an osteoma or a bony lesion or other benign lesions, we tend to think about treating those when they're causing a symptom. And for things like osteomas, most commonly that's 
blockage of a sinus and then secondary obstruction and perhaps acute or chronic sinusitis above it. You may also think about treating someone, let's say it's a young person with a very large osteoma that's just about to obstruct the frontal alpha tract. You may like to treat them because you think that it'll probably grow slowly over time and may eventually cause an issue above it. But when it's a small, instantly noted osteoma that's not causing any problems, there may not be a strong reason to actually treat that one. And when you're thinking about surgical excision, can you tell us about how you balance your excision and it being a benign lesion? Better said, because this isn't a malignancy, how do you consider whether or not to take out the entire lesion? And what structures are you considering in your approach? Great question. This is, this is certainly a nuanced answer as we're dealing with a number of different pathologic subtypes here. But, but um, again, I'll get back to the most common lesion that we see in presentation in inverting papilloma just to illustrate a principle. Presuming this is an inverting papilloma without any malignant degeneration, we will certainly recommend complete surgical excision of the lesion in these cases to prevent malignant degeneration down the road as well as prevent local complications. And we like to be very aggressive with these and remove the entire lesion, including its bony attachment, by drilling it out and removing it. But situations occur where, let's say it's eroded through the bone, it's pushing against dura. And the question becomes, well, do you resect dura to get a quote-unquote negative margin resection, or do you leave it go? The same could be said for periorbita. Let's say it's eroded through the lamina papricia, and it's pushing on the periorbita. There are some people who may make an argument that you should resect those tissues and reconstruct them in order to sort of get a quote-unquote negative margin resection. But most people would advocate with a benign lesion to leave that barrier in place to prevent things like recurrence with intracranial spread or recurrence with intraorbital spread and to leave that natural barrier in place where it's easily monitored over time. That's one example to think about as as sort of balancing, you know, the morbidity and uh, the, the optimal treatment of these things with an inverting papilloma. Another example would be an osteoma. Let's say it's a small osteoma causing blockage of a frontal uh, outflow tract that you can uh, operate on endoscopically. And it's easily removed completely. I think you go ahead and remove that lesion completely. But I'm seeing a patient tomorrow who's a young man who has such an extensive osteoma involving both frontal sinuses, his entire cranial base from his frontal outflow tract through his sphenoid. And he's someone who is primarily having symptoms related to his frontal sinus obstruction to completely remove that lesion would honestly require an entire cranial base resection with extensive reconstruction. So I'll discuss that with him, but I may also offer him a draft three with drilling out the osteoma to relieve the frontal sinus obstruction, but perhaps leaving other osteoma behind that's not causing him symptoms right now. And I know this is a broad question, uh, and we're talking about a lot of pathologies again, but how do you counsel patients with expectations and follow-up in removal of these benign tumors? I think it's challenging because many people that undergo surgery sort of expect you're going to take out everything. So it does really require a a pretty good upfront discussion with these patients. So with things like inverting papilloma, uh, when we take those out, again, our goal, assuming we're not causing significant morbidity, is to remove them completely and have no recurrence long-term. When you look at historical papers, recurrence rate for those are 30%, you know, or even higher. So they, they do certainly recur. Now, that may be pre-endoscopic era when visualization was less you know, well-described, those kind of things, but certainly recurrence can occur. If I'm anticipating I'm going to leave some tumor behind, let's say it's a sphenoid inverting papilloma, that's a eroded bone is stuck on the carotid artery. I would rather leave a little tumor on the carotid than give them a stroke. So I will counsel them that we're planning to do that, 
we'll closely monitor over time. We biopsy over time to make sure there's no malignancy in it, but just so they expect that. Or similarly with tumor on the dura or the periorbita. And then again with osteomas, I think it's important to counsel them that these are very slow-growing tumors, and you may drill it all out except for the attachment on the skull base to prevent a CSF leak. But if it grows back enough over the next you know, 20, 30 years, it may need to be you know, removed again to establish that frontal outflow tract drainage. So I think having a, a good, thorough conversation up front is very important. And I will also mention, I think that showing the patients their own imaging really drives those points home. You can show them the, the closeness to the orbit, the skull base, the carotid, et cetera. I think it helps to sort of illustrate that point to those patients. Well, Dr. Chobi, I think this has been a great discussion. I know this episode was a bit unique with the several pathologies that we talked about. Uh, but before I move into our summary, is there anything else you wanted to add? The other thing I'll add is that if you are dealing with a lesion in a very tough anatomic area that may be difficult to visualize long-term, part of your long-term follow-up may be getting imaging for those patients. So things like a frontal sinus inverting papilloma that has extension sort of up over the orbit Getting MRIs long-term may be useful for those kind of patients. But in general, I think you can follow them closely with endoscopic exams. And any recurrence, you might want to biopsy down the road or those kind of things. But uh, it's important for everyone to entertain a very broad differential diagnosis. And if there's any suspicion for malignancy at all, make sure you're biopsying and monitoring those lesions. And then in most cases, besides inverting papilloma and JNA, taking out the lesion while balancing morbidity and surgical resection is very important. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much for being here. I'll now move into our summary. Uh, benign tumors of the sinonasal cavity most often present with unilateral obstruction, though epistaxis, pain, and recurrent infections can occur. The differential diagnosis is long, and you should consider a systematic way of working through these. And one way that we discussed was considering the different types of tissue, including the epithelium, bone, cartilage, neural structures, and neighboring odontogenic sources. The most common benign tumor of the sinonasal cavity is the osteoma, which is present in up to 3% of CT scans. To evaluate a benign sinonasal lesion, CT scans of the sinuses should first be obtained, followed by MRI when there's additional suspicion or need, especially near the skull base. Consideration for treatment should be made based on the location of the lesion, patient symptoms, possible future complications, including malignancy, and patient goals. The goals of surgery are to minimize morbidity while obtaining complete excision if possible. And follow-up is similar to that of sinus surgery in terms of the need for possible in-office debridement. Uh, and then long-term follow-up is really tailored to the specific lesion and the type of excision that was able to be obtained. Dr. Choby, anything else you'd like to add? No, that was, that was great, Jason. I appreciate the time. We'll now move on to the question-asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question pause for several seconds to give you the opportunity to think about the answer or push pause yourself and then I'll give the answer. So the first question is, what is on the differential diagnosis for a benign sinonasal tumor? So as Dr. Choby and I discussed, uh, we like to consider a systematic way of going through this. And uh, in this instance, we'll use tissue of origin. So for epithelial tissue, you can consider papilloma, adenoma, and dermoid. Neural tissue, you can consider meningioma, encephalocele, neurofibroma, ectopic pituitary adenoma. Odontogenic lesions, you can consider ameloblastoma and OKC. For vascular lesions, hemangioma, angiofibroma, or even paraganglioma. For muscular, leiomyoma or rhabdomyoma, 
Cartilaginous lesions include chondroma and chondroblastoma. Osseous lesions include osteoma and osteoblastoma. Connective tissue and soft lesions can be things like fibromas and possibly lipomas and myxomas. For our next question, what is the most common benign sinonasal tumor and what are the two subtypes? The most common benign sinonasal tumor is the osteoma and the two subtypes are ivory and mature. And for our final question, what are the considerations when thinking about removing a benign sinonasal tumor? When considering surgical excision of a benign sinonasal tumor, there are three main things you want to consider. First, are there symptoms that are directly attributable to this lesion? Second, could the tumor become worse or cause complications? And third, could the tumor become malignant? And of course, you need to balance the morbidity of full surgical excision versus leaving some of the tumor behind. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.